The following presentation is a Barrett Sports Media production. He's connected. Jason Barrett says, I'd like to see you here. The answer is when, where, what do you need? Respected. He's got a long and distinguished career in the sports radio business. Truly one of the titans of our industry. And unequivocally invested. This is the place to be if you're in the sports business. He is Jason Barrett. And this is the Jason Barrett Podcast. Now bringing you in-depth conversations with the best and brightest in sports media. And shedding light on the industry's biggest opportunities and challenges. Here's the president of Barrett Media, Jason Barrett. Nice to have you aboard for the Jason Barrett Podcast. I am Jason Barrett. Just got back from a few days on the West Coast where I had a chance to drop in and see a few friends at Fox Sports, iHeartMedia, and ESPN LA 710 in between a few business meetings related to the 2023 BSM Summit. Quick reminder... Tickets and hotel rooms for the summit can be secured online at bsmsummit.com. Stephanie Eads and I had a chance to also take in a USC football game, Clippers basketball game, and a Rams game, which, by the way, if you have not been to SoFi Stadium yet, put it on your list. It is pretty outstanding. I've been to Dallas and previously thought the Cowboys venue was the best I had been to. This beats it. Easy to park, tons of space to walk around without feeling suffocated by a crowd, tremendous views from the seats, and the video board is even more impressive in person than what it looks like on TV. I wasn't sure if I was going to like it going in, but having now been there to experience it firsthand, it's pretty remarkable. You have to check it out. For today's show, I'm going to change up the format a little bit. Usually, I like to come out of the gate with an edition of what I've seen or heard, But I'm going to skip that today in order to allow for a longer conversation with my good friend and the PD of WFNZ in Charlotte, Jeff Rickard. Jeff Station just made a move in middays. They also made the decision to ditch the AM band to prioritize their FM positioning. So I want to cover those two things. I also want to get into Jeff's programming philosophy, what he looks for in talent, the complexities of the ratings game, his experience in Boston while he was running WEEI, managing high-profile talent like Dan Dockich and JMV and Indy, and there's so much more. So since there's plenty to discuss, rather than wasting any time, we're going to dive right into that conversation right now. Yo, listen! All right, Mr. Rickard, I'm going to get into some of your career in a little bit, but I want to start in the most obvious place because you just made some news this week. You've got a brand new midday show, Wes and Walker, which features Wes Bryant, Walker Mel, WFNZ in Charlotte is the station they're now on, handling the midday slot. When you're going through a process and you get to the finish line here, take me through what that entails, because you didn't arrive at this overnight. You had Nick Wilson, who was there for a while, did middays, went back to Cleveland. So you took your time on this, yet you know we're in a world where everybody's impatient. They want an answer yesterday of what the new show is going to be. So how do you keep people it, it up top at ease, the sales team at ease, that, hey, it's going to be fine, and at the same time, do your due diligence to make sure you find the right show when all said and done? Well, the first thing is we are in the communication business. So you tell everybody from sales to your your general manager, vice president, 
the people above them, the staff, exactly what's going on. Nick was very popular. Uh, he left in July. And I said, look, we have an opportunity here at WFNZ to put down roots that might grow for the next 10 or 15 years. And having said that and starting there, I said, okay, well, what do we need? We probably need young talent. We probably need homegrown talent. That's something that I think every sports radio station needs in, to some degree. Not every one of you has to be from that place. There's, you know, we all have bounced around this country and found great homes and that's fantastic. And that works. Talent is talent. And if somebody's really good, they're going to be really good. But I also think we're in an age where you can find talent that's homegrown as well. And one of the things I thought we were missing at WFNZ, despite the fact that our morning show, while they're not native to Charlotte, they've both been here for so long. I, they're just part of the, the city now. Right. And they're so good at what they do. Uh, my afternoon guy, uh, Kyle Bailey, is becoming that kind of a person. He's just part of what we do. Was very popular when we re-signed him to a, a multi-year deal earlier this year. Hundreds and hundreds of people on Twitter and text like, oh, good for you guys. We like Kyle. And so that's all good. But I still felt we were missing uh, some youth because I am looking for to build for the future. And I wanted people that were born in this city because as sports fans, we're all to somewhat to some degree, products of what we grow up with, right? I grew up in Colorado, in Denver, on the Front Range. Clearly, my alliances are with the Denver Broncos. It's what my dad and I shared for 25 years every Sunday. There's a bond there that goes beyond just the team. Uh, the Colorado Avalanche, you know, I, I was there from day one. And a member of their broadcast crew from day one, when they got there, I like to see them do well. I knew people... In the organization, maybe not so many now, but back then I knew people. And so that kind of becomes your team. And that's something that I share with my nephews and nieces and my brother. There's that bond, right? So we all kind of have that. I wanted something like that that was native to Charlotte, where Wes and Walker both grew up here. Their earliest memories are going with their dads to Hornets games or to later on Panthers games or taking a trip up to see North Carolina, something along those lines, because you just – I tell people when they're from a place, Jason, they don't even know what they don't know or they don't even know the things that they do know sometimes because it's just part of what they grew up with. And I thought that was something we were missing. And just the youth. And I wanted more voices with different backgrounds. Wes is a former athlete. We didn't have a former athlete on the station. I thought that that was important to get that perspective. Walker is going to be a superstar in this business. He's just really smooth and really good at what he does. Ultimately, I liked the pairing of those two. But what I did to, to go all the way back to your question at the beginning is I started to find people from within the market, whether they were from TV or one of them is a, runs a very popular website here or Wes was working at the ACC Digital Network. Walker was doing Locked on Hornets. I went out and found five or six people that were already known here and had already been on the station to some extent. And so they were familiar to our listeners and they were familiar to our advertisers and they were familiar to our salespeople. And I think that gave people a lot of comfort saying, hey, we're working on a permanent solution, but it's probably going to come from this pool. I'm still looking for that outlier. Maybe there was somebody out there that would have made sense. But I, I, that was way my way of making a long transition palatable for everybody. When it comes to picking the final talent, because I'm sure you had other people in Charlotte that had Tremendous. some resumes that were really good, right? 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and every PD has got a different answer for this. And that's what makes hiring so subjective and so interesting because you may say local is important. Someone else may say it's not important. Someone may want more seasoned talent. You want younger talent. What separates when you're going through a process, a Walker and a Wes from the others who might've also been really talented and really good options for you to consider. But in the end, you went with this direction. What, what separates the two? I think for me coming to it from a talent standpoint, because I've worked so much on the microphone side of things for my career. And it was a hard lesson for me to learn. And it was heartbreaking along the way as it is for everybody. You're not right for every role. Just because we truly desperately crave this particular role. You look back on it, maybe five or 10 years later and go, you know what? I probably wasn't right for that role. And I understand why now I wasn't given more consideration. I look at what we do now more as casting directors, right? Um, The station to me, I like it to be one entity. I like my shows to work together. I'm not a fan of this show's at the throat of that show. That might work in some places and it might work with the right dynamic, but I think ultimately it will eat eat itself up as time goes on. So I like shows that work together. And I like if you're casting for a sitcom, for example, you're casting for this main character, but then he needs this kind of wacky but cool wife. And he's got his best friend who he works with down at the shop who kind of portrays this role. So I'm kind of looking for different roles. And like I said, the next time I hire somebody for an afternoon or a morning show, God forbid, 10 years from now, I may not necessarily be looking for the local tie. But in this particular case, I felt that this cast was missing those particular characters. So hopefully that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And obviously what's interesting is this is your first weekday lineup, big move since you got to town. But you had to go through a process yourself just within the last year because you're in this chair. But a year ago, you're going through the whole process to, hey, am I going to be the PD in Charlotte? And, you know, so many of these things comes down to chemistry and fit and how you click with whoever is hiring. What was that? What was that process like for you? Going through, because you, and we'll get to Boston and Indy and some of those spots later, but I'm just curious, for Charlotte specific, how did you know this was the right fit? Well, a lot of it came down to chemistry with the current general manager and vice president, Marshall Landis. It was at your conference in New York, JP, where my wife and I had talked about after after my, my time in Boston, I've been working since I was 16 in this business, and I've never taken a break other than a week for vacation here or or something like that. And we thought, you know what? My kids are both, one's middle school, one just started high school. Maybe it's time for me to just hang out with them for a year. We're, We're okay if we do that, right? And that was kind of the plan. And so that took a lot of pressure off me because now I could find something that felt right. And I had talked, as you and I both know, there were a couple of other things that you had brought that as a possibility down the line, somebody else had called me and said, hey, not right now, but later on, this is going on. So there were things out there, but I had coffee with Marshall Landis and that turned into lunch and lunch turned into, we're hanging out having more coffee in the afternoon, which turned into, hey, why don't you fly down here and check this place out? And then I started to learn more about the company and it felt right. Now, again, I'm in a different spot. I I didn't have to take a job. And so that took a lot of pressure off of me. 
And I was able to find a place that I felt really comfortable with, both in terms of the staff, what they were looking for, what they needed, what I was looking for, what I might need. And most importantly, what Radio One was looking for in this position. It just kind of happened. And it didn't happen overnight. As you know, Jason, it was probably a three month long process. But the longer this process went along, the more right it felt. And, you know, here we are almost six months later. And I love it. Uh, my wife had mentioned to me the other day, she goes, I don't know that I've seen you this comfortable and relaxed and happy in a long time. And it's just because it's a great opportunity. It's a great situation. And I've been lucky. As you know, I've been in some great situations. So for me to say I'm in a great situation, that's saying a lot because I've been a very lucky guy. So what magical words then did she deliver that made you say, you know what, I had a year off. No, I don't need to work. I can chill out on the side, hang with my kids. But instead, I'm going to move to Charlotte, North Carolina, while my family's in Indianapolis and go back and forth. You only do that if you really believe in who you're going to work for and you believe in, in the company and the brand. So they obviously put some things together that made you feel confident that you were going to the right spot. But until you get to a place, you never know if it's going to be everything that you were sold or not. So what gave you that confidence? A couple of different things. Uh, the previous program director here, I had worked with at ESPN, Terry Fox and I talked quite a bit. And he couldn't say more great things about the company and about Marshall Landis. So somebody you know is in a re was really comfortable there. That's number one. That felt good. We came down here three times before we really did the deal. And one thing I will say about Marsha, she didn't oversell. She let me discover. She said, this is what we're looking for. This is what we have. And it just the more time we spent together, the longer we talked radio and what we wanted to accomplish and how we wanted to do it. It's one of those conversations where she would start to say something. And you'd go, yeah, 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 right. That's what I'm talking about right there. And so, again, I'm very fortunate. I was in a situation where I didn't have to take this job. Um, I think she certainly had a lot of options. It just, the vibe was there more so than maybe any job I've ever taken. The vibe was there to begin with. Now I've developed that vibe with people that I've worked with in the past. I mean, the, the relationship that I developed at Emmis with, with um, Bob Richards and, and David Wood, we still have lunch almost once a month. We, we just, it worked out. And so for me, I've gotten to a point in my career where it really is about the vibe with the people that I'm working with. And look, it's, it's okay. If you don't have, I've learned that now it's okay. If you don't have that with someone, don't stick around and make everybody miserable on both sides. If the vibe's not happening. Yeah. I mean, listen, sometimes you gotta, it, everybody may have the right intentions and in the end, certain things just don't line up and you could either sit there and just continue to wait for it to change. Or you just say the hell with it. You know what? Chalk it up as, it just wasn't meant to be. And so you're talking about the vibe. You went through a vibe of your own, which was different in Boston. You went to work at EEI, uh, massive brand, super competitive market, a lot of talent on that radio station. Uh, you got in there, leadership change, which I'm sure played a part in you know, the, where, where you wound up and ultimately not being there. Take me through just taking that job, being inside of there because a lot of people just read what they you know read in the trades or on the newspaper they don't understand there's there's a lot of good things about the market it's just because it's super competitive doesn't mean that it, it's not a lot of positive it's just but you you lived it so what what was it like 
there's so much to get into there. But I also want to say everybody always in the absence of information, they always go to the negative. Right. Yep. And I say that in a lot of ways, my time in Boston was very positive. And I took a lot from that. And the relationships that I made with the Greg Hill show and all those folks with Wiggy and Courtney and Greg and, and Chris and Ken Laird, who I still consider a very good friend and Gresh and Keith and their producers. And, you know, I, I was all on board of Hire and Mego to be a part of the afternoon show. We were trying to figure out where everything fit more than anything. And, and they ended up after I leaving hiring Mego. And I was excited for her because I think she's really talented. And I love Lou and Christian. And I want to say this about that whole stuff. Jason, they were open to every single thing that, that I spoke to them about. And I really felt that all of us had a really good two-way communication going. And I will always treasure the relationships that I made there in Boston. But to your point, going off of Vibe, Tim Clark had been the general manager and vice president that hired me. He left to go to a different job within Odyssey in Philadelphia. Mike Thomas came in and Mike is just a different character. He's a different person than Tim. And I tell people all the time, Mike and I didn't have big problems. There was no, there's no, not, there's no story to tell. But there just wasn't, we just weren't quite on the same page. And I think that after a couple of months together, we just kind of decided this probably wasn't going to work out for everyone. Plus, Mike had so much programming experience in a lot of ways. I don't think he needed me once he was there. And so, you know, we kind of parted ways. But I honestly don't, I don't have a big story to tell about. You know, there was no, no dark days and fights or arguments or anything like that. It just went the way that it went. Listen, like I said, sometimes situations just, I mean, to be fair to Mike, Mike, you know, takes a job and it, it to what you just acknowledged, like he had a hell of a track record of programming. He understood it in Boston. He did really well at the hub. And so if, if he wants to do his thing and you want to do your thing, sometimes it's just better to keep a friendship Everybody does their own thing. You wound up in a good spot in Charlotte. And I want to ask you about Charlotte and as it pertains to Indy, because you were in Indy before you went to Boston. And I see a lot of similarities um, and some differences. But, you know, Jeff Smullyan ran Emmis in Indy, wound up selling the Indy cluster to Radio One, who is now your employer. Um, you were in a market that had football and basketball, even though they had some, I know you're going to tell me racing was a big deal, which it also is in North Carolina, right? In in those cases, there are a lot of similarities, but you had one advantage in Indy. You had shows that were there that, I mean, Dockage was a massive, massive success. JMB, very, very successful as well in afternoons. And you were obviously on the air in the morning. How were you able, and I want to, I'll start with Dockage here because I, I think now you're in a different spot in Charlotte where you're not managing Mac and Kyle while also being the three hour a day morning show host. But when you're in Indy, you got to manage a Dan Dockage and a JMV and these guys are real successful, but you're the morning host as well as the PD. And so sometimes P hosts can get very territorial, like, well, I know that's your style of how you do a show, but I do my own thing. How are you able to get those two guys to believe in what you want to sell as a programmer and not look at it as, well, you're just suggesting that because you host in a different way? Well, the first thing, and again, I come to it from a talent perspective. I, I am not a fan in the one-way school of management where management comes in and says, 
this is the way it's going to be. You're going to do this and you're going to do it that way. And that's the way it's going to be. That to me is stifling to a creative person, right? And every talk show host in their own way is very creative because they have to go out and on their name and with their brand, create who they are and what they want to do and how they want to do it. And everybody is different. So I don't believe there's a one size fits all. Same way when I first got into Boston and, and when I came here, the first three or four months, I don't like to tinker a whole lot except for obvious procedural stuff that, that doesn't have anything to do with their creativity. You know, the, the standard stuff that we all harp about, hitting your marks, the, the clock, making sure you say the, the, the station the right way, the branding. Past that, what a guy does, we'll talk about it. But if that's what they want to do, then you try to support them with that, right? And they're all different. JMV is so wonderfully unique to Indianapolis that you you and I have talked about this, Jason. You can't replicate that. I mean, you talk about the hometown, home state guy. He is it, right? He is so part of Indiana. It just seeps through, and it's part of his popularity, and he's real, and he's genuine, and he has a lot of fun, and he lets you into who he is. You know, he likes 80s and the yacht rock, and he's not ashamed of it. And he's funny, and he drops the one-liners, and he just knows things. And Dan is a very different guy. Dan is a former head basketball coach at Indiana University where he played at Indiana for Bob Knight. He was Bob Knight's right-hand man. Dan is a very strong personality with very clear thoughts on things. And that makes people mad sometimes because Dan is not apologetic about the things that he says. And I don't always agree with him. And I don't expect everybody else to always agree with him. But I always gave Jeff Smolian critics. I know Jeff didn't always agree with him or like what he was saying. But that's Dan is as instinctively a great as a talk show host as I've ever met in my life. He just has a way to cut through. And we all talk about wanting somebody that cuts through the noise, right? Whether you like Dan or not. And again, I don't always agree with the things that he's saying or how he says them, but he cuts through and he says things that make you think. And more importantly, in radio, he says things that make you feel. Yeah, yep. Dan, that's exactly what it is. Or I can't believe you let this guy on the radio for three hours. There's a lot of good to that. There's a lot of good to that. I would almost rather have somebody you got to reel back in sometimes than somebody you got to push all the time. And Dan, to me, is a perfect example of that. And I will say, like the talent in Boston, when you came to Dan with suggestions or ideas or had conversations, what Dan appreciated is, well, what's your reason for that? Dan would, would have any conversation you wanted, but it was important to him that you'd really thought about it and at least had a point of view. Um, with Dan, he liked data. I like being able to show him, hey, look, when you do this, the meters really respond to you. When this happens, not so much, man. Let's take a look at it. Maybe there's something to that. Let's try this differently and see if we can reverse that. And then two months later, you can look at the meters again and go, hey, remember the stuff we talked about? It worked. And maybe sometimes it doesn't work. But at least with Dan, as long as you had a reason and had, had really thought about it and weren't just saying stuff to say stuff, Dan would have an honest conversation with you. I never had a problem with, with Dan having conversations about about what we were going to do or how we're going to do it. And I know it, it surprises people, but, you know, Dan would get himself in, in, I don't want to say trouble because really it was people would be reporting on the things that he said or taking issue with that. And like I said, I didn't always agree with it, but I never, Dan always had a good conversation with me. We had a good relationship and still have a great relationship. 
Dan Dan is not always, and as you know, people on the air and off the air, they're not always the same. Dan <laughs> Dan's okay, man. I know it's a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I've never had a problem with Dan at all. It's always been good to us with uh, our brand, and I think to your point. I'll take somebody who I have to reel back a little bit, but cuts through the noise all the time. And there's no question Dan Dockage cuts through the noise. I'm curious when you're programming a station, and maybe if you were younger in your career, you would have handled this different. But when you're dealing with somebody who's got strong views and they generate a lot of reaction and the media is trying to make some noise around the things that they say, and it leads to the noise trickling upstairs because you're in the same building with your CEO. My office was directly below Jeff Smolian, like <laughs> immediately below him. So, like, when, if you're a first-time PD at 32 years old, you know, like I was when I first started programming a major brand, I'd probably be reacting a little different than when I yeah. am 42 years old because I'm a little more confident now. I don't feel like I have to worry about who's upstairs. But – I'm sure there had to be a time or two where you're like, God damn it. I'm going to have to go deal with Smalley today on this. And he's going to be want to rip my head off for this. So as a PD, when you know that you have to go stop in the office where the buck stops and you're dealing with one of those, how do you, how do you manage it? What, what's your, did you have a game plan or did you just go in there and go, let me just go take my lumps? No, sometimes you say, let's go take my lumps. But I also believe to be a really successful programmer, Unless there's just the indefensible, you have to have the back of your talent. Because if you're not going to, why would they ever care about performing for you or the company or anybody else? Everybody needs to know that on some level, you have their back, right? And so when there was times, whether it was Dan or I've had other instances too with other people in different places, it's not just a Dan conversation, it's a talent conversation, you go in and you say, hey, look, I I've been there. I know that this wasn't right, but I think this is what they were trying to say. And then you're honest with the talent. You go in and you go, hey, look, the people upstairs are not happy right now. Um, I will go up there with you or I will have that conversation with them with you. But you have to understand that there is a certain point where it goes beyond me as a program director. I will do everything I can to help you. And kind of it's to me, it's a little bit like being an attorney, right? Like everybody gets an attorney, no matter what. <laughs> to, me, to a certain extent, when you're the program director, you've got this dual thing. You've got to protect the station, the brand. But I think you also have a, a duty to, to protect and stand by your people, too. And so there, there's that fine line. But look, I, I won't say who it was, but I will tell you that I have had a talent come into my office before and go, it went too far, huh? And I'd go, and they, they know when it's time. They know when something's up. So you just, I guess the bottom line to the question, long way around it is, you just got to be straightforward, direct, and honest with people. Let, let me ask you this, because you were on the air, you know, you did local radio, you did local TV, you did national radio for ESPN and Fox, sporting news. I don't want to shortchange them, of course. Uh, at what point did you start thinking about, going into programming and because i know you did it you know earlier in your career you you had some time in salt lake you had time in denver but when like so everybody goes through this of like do i want to be full-fledged talent or do i want to be a full-fledged programmer you have to be comfortable at being removed from 
you know, being the four hour a day guy, when did you reach that point mentally where you were confident and comfortable enough to, all right, I just want to help people get better. I'm not so worried about my own touches. I think first of all, to get to that level, getting to ESPN radio and then working so much at Sirius XM, you get to a point where, Hey, Oh, I got a second. I outlived my first contract at ESPN. They want more. Oh, now Sirius wants me to work on Mad Dog and MLB Network Radio and and Fantasy Sports Radio. There gets to be a point where, like Malcolm Gladwell says, you get your 10,000 hours in. Then you get your 20,000 hours in, right? Then you get your 30,000 hours in. And when the big boys start asking you to do stuff again and again and again, now you go, okay, maybe I am. Maybe I am okay at this, right? I can do this. And once you have all that time into where you know exactly how to prepare, what's important, what's not important, where you can spend your time wisely and where you can't spend your time wisely, then you start to say, okay, uh, I've been at this network. I'm not going to be Colin Coward. That's taken. Um, I worked with Doug Gottlieb and Doug kind of became a thing. And that was Doug and I are friends. It was exciting to watch that happen. And, and I still enjoy that. Um, Dan Patrick was at the ESPN when I first got there. Um, and I was filling in for him when he was gone all the time. But as time went on, it, it became clear that while everybody liked what I did and there was always going to be work for me, I don't think the people at that level saw me as a Colin or a Dan Patrick where I could have my own daytime show three hours a day. Hard to, hard to accept, right? But you say to yourself, okay, if that's not going to happen, what can I do as time goes on that I haven't already done? Now, my programming career really goes way back. I tell people all the time, and I'm, I'm probably older than people think I am, Jason, but I tell people all the time. 21, I, right? Yes, exactly. I didn't invent sports talk radio, but I did move in across the street as the second house on the block. And when I say that, I'm working in Tri-Cities, Washington, and it's 1994. And... I'm doing a play-by-play -play of a CBA game and the lights go out in the arena. So my co-host and I, Matt Price, start just having a conversation about sports and talk and whatever. This is right about the time that WFAN is just starting to take off. And the owner of the station is listening to us as he's driving around in his truck. And he goes, hey, that sounded kind of cool. What would you think about starting an all-sports radio station? I go, I don't know. Let me look into it. And so KJR had just started. I think they were on the air for a year or two in Seattle. And I could listen to them every day because we were also affiliates for the Sonics, the Mariners, and Washington State football. So I had them up on the satellite all the time. So I listened to what they were doing and how they were programming things. We were one of the first stations to sign up for ESPN Radio, which at the time, believe it or not, was only Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. Remember that? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I built the schedule around those guys and there wasn't enough national sports programming yet. So I would fill in like some financial talk. I did an afternoon show and I kind of made it up as I went along while I was listening every day to WFAN and KJR and really starting to figure it out. I'd run this fabulous sports babe when I could, uh, things of that nature. And so in my own weird way, I kind of was programming a, a sports radio station without knowing I was really programming a sports radio station. Then I got a job in Denver and I didn't have to worry about that. I was home and life was good and it was a brand new sports station and we were having fun. We were the home of the Nuggets and later the Avalanche. I got to do my own show there in my hometown and that was awesome. Uh, 
but then I started to say, okay, now what's going to be next? Because again, I was in a situation there were some established longtime veteran shows. And at least in the short term, I wasn't going to be the afternoon drive guy, right? It was Doug Moe, the coach, the former coach of the Nuggets, and Tom Green, who was a very well-respected and very good local TV guy. And they were in it for the long haul. And I thought, okay, well, there was a job that opened up to be the afternoon host and the program director in Salt Lake City at the flagship of the Utah Jazz. And I thought, well, let's take a swing at that. And then it worked out. So then I was, again, programming and on the air at the same time. I was young. I was single, um, which was good because I was putting in about 70 hours a week because I didn't really know how to be economical with my time yet. And I was doing all kinds of other things. And then I got a chance to go to Sporting News Radio. Uh, Matt Nahigian, who's programming out in San Francisco, hired me at Sporting News Radio. And I thought that was the end-all, be-all. It was James Brown, Jeff Rickard, and Tim Brando. Like I had to pinch myself going to work every day. Right. And honestly, I look back now, the, the abilities that I have now and what I did then, I thank God Matt saw something in me because I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was just trying to with the Joneses, so to speak. But um, it worked. And then I got hired by Bruce Gilbert at ESPN after my contract was up at Sporting News. And then the rest we've already talked about. So in a weird kind of way, I kind of grew up doing both. I don't know that I could tell people do this or do that. I just have always done it. I don't know any different, to be honest with you. Let me ask you this, as someone who has programmed and has evolved as a PD, because what you were doing in Tri-Cities, Washington, while you're young, you're just throwing shit at the wall, hoping it sticks because the format's so new, nobody knows what the hell works. And now right. you're in a different spot. You know, you're in a, you have to go into a Charlotte, like, you mentioned earlier from Denver. So you have to go into an Indianapolis, learn the market, come up with what's going to work in that market. You have to find and get a dockage on the air and make sure that it becomes a huge success and stays a success. Um, same in Boston, same in Charlotte. So as somebody who has had to move to new markets, learn what makes the brand go and ultimately lead them to success. What are some, you know, when when you're going into a new situation, your first 90 to 180 days, what are a couple of the things that you're looking to accomplish and really get your arms around to make sure that you wind up in a good place with the brand, not sitting there two years later going, now I got to do damage control because I screwed everything up? Well, I think the first thing you do, and, and I'm a big fan of this, I don't, I am, there's nothing that drives me crazier than when somebody goes into a market and just starts changing things. And I tell people when I first get in there, I tell the market managers, the vice president, anybody who will listen, look, I will, I am forever like you. You and I talk about this all the time. I'm forever looking for new talent. That's what I do in a, at night when, this, when the day is done and I got an hour to kill. I'm looking at talent all over the place. I got, I got my, my calendar up here twice a week for 30 minutes. I've got out-of-market survey. All I do, Jason, is just pick a radio station at random somewhere else in the country and listen to it for 30 minutes. I'm looking for ideas. I'm looking for how do they do things? Do I like what they're doing there? Oh, I would have done it this way. Whatever it is. Uh, but, but that's the first thing is you have to learn what works in that market because JMV works in Indianapolis. He's become a really good broadcaster. Ten years ago, I don't know that JMV would have worked anywhere else but Indianapolis. I think now he could work about anywhere. But so you learn that, okay, that's maybe not what I'm used to, but boy, does he connect here in ways 
that I couldn't connect here right now. The other thing I think that's helpful for me is I've always traveled. Uh, I like traveling. I like going to new places. And to me, when I travel to a place, I'm not there to take pictures necessarily and just so, oh, yeah, that was cool. Like if I go to Florence, Italy, I want to eat at a local place where the locals eat. I want to talk to some people who grew up there and are eighth generation, you know, natives to the, to that city, wherever it happens to be. It's the same thing when I go to a new market. When I went to Indianapolis, first thing I did is find a great breakfast place that I like. And it so happened that the breakfast breakfast place I found is called the Sunrise Cafe in, in Carmel, Indiana. Uh, it's owned by a guy named Jim Horsfield, who's become one of my best friends. And he was a sports fan. And we would just sit and talk about the Pacers or the Colts and what he liked and what he didn't like. And then I would talk to other people that went to school with my kids in Carline or whatever. You've got to throw yourself into the place where you're at and find out what generally people like and what they don't like. Listen to people who've been successful there in the past and go, I wonder why that person has been successful. And really pay attention to what's working in that market as opposed to, well, I know better because I've done this for 30 years. This is what you have to do. You have to look at the talent and say, what is it that they bring to this market that makes them so unique that they have this position already? Are they successful? Let's find out why. If they're not successful, it doesn't always work out. And so you find something else it is. But you have to be willing to somewhat adapt to the market, the station, and the talent that you have. If they're successful, obviously, if it's not going well, we all have to make changes occasionally. But I think the biggest mistake people make is they go and they go, no, I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to do it this. Yes, it'll be my I'm very subtle. And, and I don't know that this is good for managing above me sometimes, but I like to be very subtle about how I'm doing things. I give an example. I've been here for six months now and we had an all staff meeting where we were formally going to go over the brand new lineup last week, pizza, everything else. And I walked in. And I've got great relationships and we've been doing show meetings and everything. And I said, guys, I am so glad that you're all here and I'm proud of every one of it. I just want you to know that you've officially made the team. I never told anybody that they were under observation or that their jobs, I mean, we're all being evaluated every day, right? Yep. But announcing this new lineup and handing out new contracts and giving people stuff, I wanted them to feel like you guys earned this. I'm just happy to be here with you. And they did. And they have earned it and they belong here. And that's fun to say to people. And I think it gives them a sense of belonging. At, well, least I at, at the same time, it also reminds them that like, listen, this is a competitive business. You've got to come ready to play. Like yeah. I, I, one of the best things I ever saw early in my career, I wasn't, you know, in programming yet. I was working as a, uh, I think it was covering the New York Jets at the time for a local station in upstate New York. And I would go down to Jets practice and Jets games. And this is when Parcells coached a team. And that's my guy. Oh. Like every, like people ask me, like, who's your biggest radio influence? My biggest coaching influence, period, is not a radio guy. It's Bill Parcells. Because I always appreciated the structure of how he built a team that went from one in 15 to a Super Bowl or near it within four years. Like he, yep. he just had great strategy. But at the time he had Brian Cox who had a decorated career, great linebacker, and he had him on the Jets. And I remember one day I'm covering the Jets and Cox comes in and he slams his helmet against the uh, the locker. And he was always pretty cool with me. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, freaking Parcells. And I'm like, what happened? 
And he's like, this son of a bitch came out onto the field today with two gas cans. One was empty, one's full. He said, you started on one, now you're at another. Figure out which one you're on. I just had two damn sacks last week. And, and he was all pissed off, right? That week, Cox forced a fumble that decided the game. And the Jets win. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, all right, it, you know, let's give Brian Cox some credit. It wasn't just because of a gas can. He made a play. But how much did that coach get in his head that he literally wanted to, like, stick it to him? Or at the same time, Parcells sitting there smirking on the side. I'm like, look, that's it's the brilliance of coaching, man. Like, the ones who can reach people get the best performances out of them. And if you're good on the air and you don't mind pressure – you don't care that you're constantly being evaluated because you have something to prove to yourself anyway. If you have to, you know, it takes a meeting for you to, hey, by the way, congratulations on making the team. Oh, my God, I, my my job's in jeopardy. Well, eventually, maybe the next meeting, you're not going to be there. Like, you got to be confident to do this. It's a competitive no. field. You're, you're Two things. You're exactly right. A, I wanted them to feel proud of themselves and that there was already an accomplishment. And, and I also told them it was time to get to work. And so there's that subtle part that was there. And I'm aware of that. Uh, the other thing that, and you and I have never talked about this. I have an almost identical story to tell about the way I structure things. Mike Shanahan. I covered the Denver Broncos when Mike Shanahan was the head coach. And I had never seen anybody in any industry, in any sport, run practices the way that Mike Shanahan ran practices. If you think it was an accident that the Broncos won two Super Bowls. Yeah, they had Terrell Davis and a great defense and the John Elway. But but you know what? John Elway had been there for 15 years prior to that and hadn't won a Super Bowl, had he? Mike Shanahan was so precise with every second. The two guys that taught me every second counts were Mike Shanahan and Bruce Gilbert. And every, it's my mantra now, every second counts. Everything you did with Mike Shanahan had a purpose. He was the first, one of the first guys that, from drill to drill, all right, the whistle blows, you go to the next one. Whistle blows, go to the next one. First guy I've ever seen that that blew the whistle, brought everybody back in after about 10 minutes of practice, and, and he drops the whistle after everybody's down and on one knee, and he looks around and he goes, just go back to the locker room and be back here in 15 minutes, and we're just going to start over. Didn't yell, didn't berate anybody. There had been no previous signs that he was unhappy with practice. He just blew the whistle, brought everybody in, and said, you know what? We're just going to start over and pretend these first 15 minutes didn't happen. Go get yourself together. I'll see you here in 15 minutes. He was telling them, if I'm going to be out here doing this for you guys, we need to make it worth our while collectively. If you're going to be out here, then be out here. And be paying attention to the things you need to be paying attention to. When you're on the radio, every second counts. Because I tell people all the time, Jason – your competition is not, if I was in Boston, it wasn't the hub. It's not the rock station here in, in Charlotte. It's not anybody else in, in Indianapolis. Your competition is the button. Whether they're going to Spotify, whether they're going to the rock station, whether they're going to the other sports station, it's because that second, whatever you were selling, that listener was not buying. Every second matters. Your enemy is the button. It's not your competition. If you're doing your job and being interesting and entertaining and talking about the right things at the right time, there's a really good chance that the people that came to you for sports and opinion 
If you're giving that to them, they're probably going to stick around for a minute. The second, and it, it's as you know, it's not a conscious decision. When we're in the car and we're listening to our favorite rock station, the first time a song comes on that we're not into, you just change the station. You don't go, oh, I'm out on 98. <laughs> you just do it. It's you you know, it's what's fascinating about that. It's uh and I'm just thinking as you're talking about it, how I've used this with different talent over the years in different markets. I, I've always preached you can control the controllable, right? You can pick better content. You can book a better guest. You can cut a better soundbite and use it in the right place. You can write better imaging. You can come up with a bigger event that makes money for the brand. You can be more supportive with ideas to help sell. What you don't control is what someone does who's sitting in a car when you're not near them. You don't know what they're doing. You even I, I would love to get your feedback on this. I, I still, even this day and age, people who will tell me, I, yeah, I've got a rating strategy. I know what works. No, you don't. No, you don't. Let me tell you why you don't. Because you're looking at a, a screen that's showing you charts. Now, if you told me you have a private investigator who's tracking every person with a meter and you know what they do every minute of the day, I would say, okay, maybe you got a you got something different going on than, than the PD. But we all follow data. The problem with data is data does not take into account human behavior all the time. All they tell, tell you is what the device is doing. Well, the device could be sitting next to a speaker picking up signal for three hours and the person might be outside mowing the lawn. That doesn't mean they liked your product. At the same time, they may have not recognized they turned the thing off. So answer me that. Like as someone who's had to, and you've had some rating success over the year, how do you get, you know, because you're, if I'm Kyle Bailey, I'm Chris McLean, I'm your brand new midday show. Jeff, help me get to the top five, right? Yeah. You can well, work with them on content and stuff like that, but you well, can't tell them you know what a meter is going to do every minute of the day. Here's here's what you can do. You can, first of all, teach them the PPM game, which, as you know, you can steal a share somewhere along the way if you just play the game correctly, right? That's the first thing. Are we maximizing what we can do regardless of what the content is, right? So th that's blocking and tackling. You know, we can all do that. One of my favorite tools is media monitors, but you got to be careful with media monitors. A couple of examples. Let's say that, and, and I'm a big believer in tracking media monitors. Let's say there's a guest that comes on every week, pick a day, Tuesdays at 745. And you track it for 13 weeks. And every time this guy was on at 745, the meters went from eight to five. Yep. Well, part of you could say, Damn, every time he comes on, people leave the station. Or it's 7.48 in the morning and maybe people have arrived to their workplace. I don't know. I'll share a fun secret. When I was in San Francisco, um, competition, Murph and Mac, okay? They would have Kruk and Kipe on every, every day at 7.30. And I would see the meters go from like 5 to 30. Like it was so clear these guys were like rock stars. I would tell my show, don't put your best guest at 7.30. This is where we're doing our third topic. Don't worry about your best topic. Save that for 8 o'clock. Tip your cap. These guys have a great piece of real estate. They do a great job with these guys. 
The audience likes it. I'm not going to worry about this quarter hour. I'm going to worry about the quarter hours where I got a shot to get people. But at 7.30, I'm going to send the note. You guys kick ass. And we watch it. Ours get kicked. But at 7.45, I'm coming. So yep. you just try to play the game within the game. No, a great example of that, and I won't get into specific numbers, but Greg Hill, who, by the way, just won the Marconi for Major yep. Market Play of the Year, and I was so happy for him. As you know, Greg is just – he's terrific. And and the, what he does for the community in Boston, aside from the radio show, he's funny, he's, he's witty, he's smart. He knows exactly what to do with Wiggy and Courtney and, and Chris and Ken and everybody else who's there. But there, there were times that even against the hub that was getting these big numbers – there were moments where it was clear people were digging what Greg was doing. We really did try to double down on those time periods. And then we would say, okay, what could we possibly do here instead? But to your point, everything Greg does is pretty good. And I think in Boston, there's a lot of switching back and forth. And, and I think over time you will see an evening because there is great talent at WEEI. They kind of, got in their own way for a couple of years. And I think just made a lot of mis listeners mad for a couple of years is really what happened. I think over time and slowly, and I think Mike will do a good job too. They'll, they'll come back and it'll be a competitive landscape again, because there is talent at, at WEEI. But yeah, to your point, there are clearly times where whatever somebody's doing at a certain time to your, to your point there, all of a sudden they go from eight meters to 24, right? Or maybe, Maybe, you know, one, I'll tell you one place Greg really used to do well. First 45 minutes of his show from six to six 45, people were, people were buying what he was selling during that time frame, man. And so that that's also, but that's also a way to realize that whatever the reasons are for the ratings disparity at this particular point in time or whatever, there's, it's a, it's a good way to say to your point, there's a lot to work with here too. Yep. There's a lot going on here too. You, you've seen the Players' Tribune. They do this uh, a letter to my younger self. I'm going to hit you with it for as a programmer. One piece of programming advice you have now that you wish you had back then would be what? Well, I always kept my eye on the prize, so I wouldn't bother myself with that. I would say be patient and trust your process. Be patient and trust your process. Every time I was about to give up on a dream or give up on this, something would happen because I never gave up. I trusted myself and I trusted the process, even when I was feeling down about not getting this particular job or not getting that particular job. And then, you know, it's a weird business. Jason, I went for so long not being able to get in the, the door at the places I wanted to get into, the sporting news, the, the ESPN radios. And then for about seven years, I, I got everything I tried. And then that kind of went away and it got to be a little more spotty. Like, oh, I like this. Well, they don't want you for that. They don't want you for this. And I go back to full circle what we talked about earlier. So many times it's about casting. You may want that job so bad and you may be extremely talented, but they may be looking for a power forward and you're a point guard. And it's no more than that. They, yep. might, they might think of you down the road as a point guard. But they're looking for a power forward right now. And so don't always take those things so personally because there might not have been anything you could have done to get that job. That's that's outstanding. Um, I want to ask you one last thing here, uh, and it pertains to Charlotte. And I'm just interested to get, get into your brain of the rationale behind it. So you guys uh, recently, over the last two months, made a decision 
FNZ for the longest time was on AM and mm-hmm. it had an FM translator, but it really was an AM brand that, that yeah. most people went to. And then you guys, to the support of Radio One, they said, let's put this thing on a real FM, which was great. But you then made the decision, we're going to weed people off the AM. We got to get them onto the FM band. You ran promos and told people, hey, the day's coming where it's going to be FM only. What mm-hmm. was what was that process like for you? And what have you seen so far since you guys moved away from AM? Well, the morning show has gone to number one since we did that. So that's not a bad thing. I, I think we are living in such an age of, look, there's going to be two or three years from now or AM is not even going to be offered in the automobiles that you buy anymore, right? You get in right now. My wife got a brand new car last August. You get in and you can put Sirius XM. You can put Apple, Apple Play. You can put whatever you want to put in, there, right? And so AM has just become kind of a, a passe thing, I think. There are still some hardcore people. Like, look, I know in Indiana, uh, if you know anything about the Indianapolis area, you only have to go about 15, 20 miles outside of the city before you start to get into some serious farmland, right? And great farmers. And there are guys out there that live and swore by their AM band because they're in a they're in a combine 12 hours a day and they're listening to it was hard on those guys and i appreciate that and i felt that for them but i also know that we've done study after study after study not just with my brands but other brands and i know in this latest particular one about 13 we, we did a couple of different surveys 13 to 17 percent of our listeners were listening to us on am and it was going down each year and you know, I know in the case, look, in the case of uh, of Emmis and Jeff Smolian, they got rid of 1070 for the longest time. Jeff, I think, finally, and I, I can't speak to what he did or why he did it. I can only surmise. This is my guess. My guess is that he was sitting at, he had a translator that was sitting on a huge tract of land, and the land was probably worth a lot more money than anything he was going to bring back in radio for the next 10 or 15 years. I, I can't, again, I don't know for a fact that that's the case. I can only surmise from the outside looking in because I know the land got sold and I know the transmitter came down. But I also know that not that many people were listening to us on 1070 anymore. I don't think that many people were listening to 610 anymore once we truly got the full service 92.7 up and running. I had just come from Boston and right before I got there, you saw this. They got off simulcasting EEI on AM and FM. In fact, that AM signal now, they've put, I think, BetQL on there, right? Yep. And EEI is its own separate thing. The great radio station that I grew up with in Denver, the Blowtorch, one of the original Blowtorches. You could hear it in 38 states at night. One of the original Clear Channel stations, KOA. They moved to the FM dial. It, unfortunately, is just the reality of where people are listening and how they're consuming content. And I also think there was like 23% of our audience was listening to us on either a smart speaker or WFNZ.com. And another 18% were listening to us on the app. It's just the way that this generation is, is moving. It's the way they're going. It's the trend that they're taking. It's painful in a lot of ways because I grew up on AM sticks. Yep. But it's also just the way it is these days got to follow the audience i'm gonna wrap with you on this so your morning guy which by the way congrats that's awesome to hear mac and t-bone do the morning show the mac attack on fnc number one awesome for those guys i'm sure their videos have something to do with this 
because uh, for those listening, if you haven't familiarized yourself with Chris McClain, every Monday or Tuesday, if they play on Monday night, when the Panthers win, he does these ridiculous, terrible dancing videos that are just so laugh out loud funny. And if they lose, it, it's just as entertaining. Like he did this uh, this thing two weeks ago, turning off the lights in an office because he was he just felt like he can't dance no more because the Panthers let him down. So here's my question to you. Panthers somehow shock everybody, which I can't see, but let's say they do. They make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Jeff it is Rickard, the out, oh, Jason. <laughs> if they get in the playoffs, is Jeff Rickard in a dance video with Mac at the end of the year? I will. I tell you what, in, in a scene that absolutely no one wants to see, <laughs> I will. I will stand on that table and I will do anything I need to do if the Panthers make the postseason. How about? <laughs> I'm promising you, right? I won't be as entertaining as Chris, but I'll try. Thank you for listening to the Jason Barrett Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, YouTube, or wherever you consume podcasts. And to stay in touch with Jason, follow him on Twitter at Sports Radio PD or read his columns on BarrettSportsMedia.com.